Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. It's an absolute pleasure today to have Anthony Anarino, who is author, blogger, and writer, author of The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, The Lost Art of Closing, and a work of absolute genius, Eat Their Lunch, which is all about displacing incumbent competition. Anthony, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience a couple of minutes in terms of your background and how you got to where you are? I'm happy to. I started out working in my family's temporary staffing business when I was probably about 18 or 19 years old. At that time, I was fronting a rock and roll band here in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. And uh, ultimately, I was told that I should go to Los Angeles to play rock and roll at a place where there'd be a lot more tension. So I got in my car and I drove out to Los Angeles and I started fronting uh, rock and roll bands there while I worked in, I stayed in temporary staffing. I had to find a job so that I could afford to live in LA because you certainly don't make any money playing music and especially not there and especially (laughs) not when I was there. So that's, that wasn't a possibility. I was doing good work in an operational role and at some point, I got a new manager, and the new manager had recognized very quickly that the three salespeople he had were not selling. And at some point, he realized that all the accounts I had won, and he couldn't really understand how a guy with hair all the way down to his waist was winning <laughs> accounts when his three professional salespeople weren't winning any accounts. And he asked me, you know, how do you do this? And I said, I just call people and ask them if I can come and meet with them. And some of them say yes. And I ask them to share with me what kind of challenges they're having getting the people that they need. And some of them tell me the challenges and I ask them if I can help and they say yes. And at that point, he said, I want you to cut your hair and I want you to become a full-time outside salesperson. And that was the most revolting idea I'd ever heard in my life. I mean, why, <laughs> why on earth would I ever want to be a salesperson? And, uh, or cut I your hair. Test, yeah, or cut my hair. I, I had to explain to him a hair metal band means, you know, you have hair, which is not true for me anymore, but it was true then. I ended up taking this job in outside sales. I became a, a much worse salesperson when somebody made me a salesperson because... right. I shifted from trying to do things for people to trying to do things to people. And I was trying to be helpful before, but now I was trying to help myself. And uh, it's sort of the, the intention changed for me and my results changed along with my intentions. It took a little while for me to get over that. But after that, I started to um, learn how to play the game. And I had a good mentor and a good leader who showed me how to play the game at a higher level than I had certainly seen. And I won a $50 million account. It was a five-year deal, $10 million a year. And I was their golden boy. And it was the second largest deal won in the United States that year. And uh, ultimately... How old were you then? I was 24. Very nice. And I uh, ended up having a grand mal seizure a few weeks after winning that deal. And I ended up having to move back to Columbus, Ohio to have a brain surgery. I had a something called arterial venous malformation removed from the front right lobe of my brain, along with the damaged part of the brain. I came back to Columbus believing I was going to go back to Los Angeles and resume my life. But what the doctors never told me until after the surgery was I wasn't allowed to drive for two years. 
So I ended up back in the family business and I grew that business and I started reading and studying everything on sales. I became the sales leader and then eventually the president of the company and chief sales officer. And so I grew that thing to a, a very nice number with six salespeople. At that point, people started asking me for help. And they started asking me, well, how could we learn to do what you do? And at some point, well, not at some point, 10 years ago, December 28, 2009, I started writing the blog every day. And uh, from there, that turned into books and conferences and all kinds of other things. So that, that's the path from there to here. Very interesting. I am curious about one thing. I've dabbled a little bit in stand-up comedy, and my daughters certainly don't think I'm very funny. But what I have discovered is that constraint helps dramatically. And in my sales, I've also found that. How did you find the constraint of not being able to drive and you having to <laughs> tighten up? How did that affect you? I was 25. So this, this all happened uh, right at my 25th birthday. And I had to move back into my mom's house. It was a little tiny house. And uh, it was sort of um, frustrating. And it, it was, well, how do you get to the store to go buy toothpaste? I was on my own, you know, working full time and taking care of myself at about 13 years old. And having my freedom taken away was the most, I mean, most difficult thing for me. And, you know, here in the United States, I don't know what it's like where you are, but here in the United States, your car is your freedom. It is the key to being free. And having that taken away was tough. I lasted uh, about a year. And then I realized that they were never going to release me to drive no matter what. And it was just sort of a liability thing. They just didn't know if I was going to have another seizure. I never had another seizure. And eventually I decided I had to move on with my life and start driving again. So let me ask you this. I said right at the head of this interview that Eat Their Lunch is a masterpiece. And I genuinely mean that. I think you've encapsulated the essence of what great salespeople do to displace incumbent competitors. And so would you mind giving us a quick overview of the structure of the book and your thoughts that led you to create it. Yeah, thank you for the kind words on the book. I think it's a, it's a difficult book in a number of places. And I did the best I could with 65,000 words, which is how many words do you get for a book? You get 60, but I got 65. So that was, it gave me a little bit more room. I came out of temporary staffing. And so I don't know the world that a lot of people live in when it pertains to sales. So I never had a lead. I mean, I've never had a lead ever as a salesperson. It wasn't something, it was just, I had to find people to call on. So I've always had targets. I've always been in a business that required taking an account from somebody else in order to win one. So it's the thing that I know the most. And, you know, one, one thing I, I, I discovered the framework for level four I discovered in 2010 while trying to help people stop being so transactional. What Can you explain is, what you mean by level one, two, three, and four? I'll share that. What I recognized is that people cared to talk about their company and their product and their solution. It wasn't how I was winning accounts. I was coming in and starting from a very different place. So I was starting from how do we get a strategic outcome here that's worth making the change for? In my business that I came out of, there might be 200 
companies that do the same thing in the city that you're in. And so if you were to say something like, Marcus, listen, we have all the good people. Our competitors have all the terrible people. You should buy from us. And then they're like, how does that work? How could you not all be pulling from the same pool of people? And why don't we see a difference in the results we get no matter who we use? And they were right to challenge that. So the four levels end up being something that's pretty useful as a structure to help people understand how this works. So the first level is the level of value that you get in your product. So the product has value. But the problem with that is that it just makes you look and sound like a commodity. One level I'm up like from everyone that, else. You sound just like everyone else and you look like everyone else. And it makes it really difficult to decide to use you instead of somebody else, especially if I already have a long relationship with them. So the second thing is the experience. So are you easy to do business with? Do you have great support and great service? And a lot of people have those things now too. So you need level one to get to level two, but level two is better than level one. Level three is, can you get me a tangible result? Can you show me how you get this tangible result? So this is what I would call solution selling. And uh, I think that it's still an important part of the value equation. But I guess to give you an, an example to make level four seem really easy for people to understand, if you think about level three as, I'm a company and I need new customers. So I want to write this letter. I want to fold the letter in half. I want to put it in an envelope and I want to mail it to this list of people who I think are prospects. Okay, so that's a tangible result. So the question is, Mark, could you print this letter? Could you fold it? Could you mail it to these people? And the answer is, yes, I can do that for you. And I can probably do it at a slightly lower rate than the people you're paying now. The difference between three and four is the difference between realizing that somebody really doesn't want to send letters to prospective clients. They want the client to take action and go out to a website and sign up for a credit card or buy the new product or whatever it is. The outcome is not mail. The outcome is how do I get this customer to do what I need them to do so that I can grow my business and create value for them and then retain them and sell them more things. So what I found is that if you go in and you start saying, well, let's talk about how we acquire the people that are going to be the right fit for you and how are you going to retain them and how are we going to onboard them so they have the greatest level of success? How do we make sure that you are productive with these people and that they're capable of picking all these things up and ultimately coming in and starting from four and working backwards? People were much, much more engaged. And I just started telling this story because I hadn't told it uh, until recently, but I used to have this beautiful slide deck. It's animated. It's professionally drawn. (laughs) You see, it's just gorgeous. And I would show it to people and uh, they wouldn't be very enthusiastic about the slide presentation. And at some point, just in, in sheer frustration, so this is the late 90s, early 2000s, and sheer frustration yeah. of not being able to get people to do what they should do, I came up with a deck that I just called my insight deck. So these are all the things that I was sort of paying attention to. What's, what are the labor market statistics? How many people are available in the market? How many have that skill? What percentage of them can pass a drug test or a background check? What are the average pay rates and how is the customer competing you know, in a market when they're under market for pay rates and things like this? I started to look at all these things. And at one point, I had this quarterly business review and I walked in with this deck. And rather than using the deck that told everybody how great my company was, 
I just brought up this deck and I said, you know, here's where we are in the market. So let me tell you our view. And uh, I started just sharing, and, and these are hideous slides. I mean, I designed them myself, and that means they're <laughs> not done by an artist. And the conversation was really, really strong. So it's like, well, there's only 32,000 people on unemployment in this whole city. Right. And how long have they been on? Like the average is six weeks. And at the end of the conversation, one of the leaders said, can I have that deck? And I wasn't prepared for anybody to ask for my slide deck. And I said, um, sure. Why do you need it? And he said, I've got to brief my leadership team. And this would help me explain to them why we have to start doing things different if we want to get a different result. And I said, sure, I'm happy to give you the deck. And he said, would you mind taking your logo off of it? And I'm like, wow, I did his homework for him. Now he's trying to go in and explain something. And I'm thinking, I just have the greatest Trojan horse in the history of Trojan horses. Now I've got a deck inside that he's using to teach people what I need them to do. And from that point forward, I had learned, like, they don't really care about me. They don't care about my company. They don't care about my slide deck. They don't care about the (laughs) logos of the companies I'm working with. They care about the result that they want. I always describe it as showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. Yes. And they're, of course, polite, but not all that interested. (laughs) After the second one, they're thinking, how can I escape? Yeah, exactly. What did I sign on for? Once I recognize like the starting point for the conversation is what defines who you are as a salesperson. So if you want to lean on product and you want to lean on my company's great history or these logos that we've captured or these solutions, you're saying that the value isn't going to come from you. The value is going to come from something else that's not you that tends to be more important than what value you can create. But the value that you're supposed to be creating is to help them understand why they need to start looking at doing things different, how they should consider making those decisions, and ultimately what they need to do and what what they need to change if they want to get those better results. So when you come in and you start at a four, you're just going to have, I mean, what's happened with anyone who's uh, done this uh, approach? And I get letters from people every day. It's like, I get so many more meetings. I have so many more executives that are willing to engage and we get right to the point very quickly and we start talking about what happens and they're they're very, very engaged with the content. So the structure of the book basically is the question you asked me. And now you know I don't run out of words very quickly either, right? (laughs) The first chapter gives you level one uh, through four. The second chapter sort of tells you how to go out and find the insights that you need to be able to have a conversation with implications for the client of not changing. And the third chapter is a structure for using this for prospecting. The middle section of the book is really about a new type of discovery where you're taking a more holistic look at clients and all of the contacts that would make up a stakeholder map because most of the decisions in B2B and complex sales are consensus driven now. And yeah. then the, the remainder of the book is really about if you want to be a trusted advisor and you want to be a peer and you want to be consultative, then you have to behave like one. And so the last part of the book is really how do you behave if you want to maintain that role? Again, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the mistakes that salespeople make is they try and sell. That Actually, buyers and C-suite buyers in particular don't want you to sell to them. What they want is leadership, a safe pair of hands. They want insight. They want you to help 
rip the scales from their eyes so that they can see reality because they're so close to their problems. And I think one of the key points that you made very early on in the book is about how easy and straightforward it can be to spot when a competitor is right for displacement because I think they lose sight of that. Now, you mentioned in the book complacency, entitlement, apathy, poor communication, seemingly a systematic misunderstanding of the reality that the customer is operating and failing to address these systemic challenges that they face. And the only way you can do that is by examining the world in which they occupy, their marketplace, their industry, the competitive landscape. And it's certainly my view that an account, particularly an enterprise account, is one in the planning, it's in the research, it's in the preparation, the rehearsal, in the mapping. It's not um, through wily sales technique. That, that plays its part. But the reality of any war is it's one in the planning stage. One of my favorite examples is Napoleon. Two years before a French soldier left French soil, he decided which general would surrender to him at, specifically at the village of Austerlitz. And he hammered the Prussians. And I think salespeople need to think more like generals rather than ground troops. Your thoughts? I spend a lot of time thinking about Prussian generals. And um, I mean, von Moltke's work is is fundamental to how I think about what salespeople do. And in the United States, we have an Air Force colonel here that was uh, named John Boyd, and he came up with something called the OODA loop, which is sort of the novelty of observing, orienting, deciding, and acting. And it's in the orientation, you know, in the observation that you find the novelty. And so I I think that all those kinds of concepts are worth looking at because you're, you know, if you come in and you say, listen, Marcus, my company's been in business since 1922. We've got 4,000 locations. We work with the biggest companies on earth. Here's some of the logos. There's nothing novel there. And the truth of the matter is I could take that deck from one company and swap it out with their competitors. And neither of the parties that have a brand new deck that's not their company would have very much trouble delivering it. When you come in and you have a different conversation and you say, we think the greatest systemic threats to your business or businesses like yours over the next 18 to 24 months look like this. And we're having these conversations with our clients to help them get in front of this. Then people tend to perk up and be interested. I'm going to say one other thing real quick. I'll hand this back to you, but If you go back to as far back in history as you want to go, and if you want to look at great leaders or generals or pharaohs, kings, they all surrounded themselves with trusted advisors who had some subject matter expertise where they were lacking, and they surrounded themselves with those people. And it's still true today. So if you want to be relevant to decision makers, then you have to cover some part of the knowledge that they don't have you know, as deep as you do, because that's the way that you become a trusted advisor. You need two things. You need trust and you need advice. And (laughs) where we make the mistake is forgetting that your product is an advice, your company is an advice, your solution is an advice, advice is advice. And that's that's the part. (laughs) Yes. This is really interesting because again, where I see so many businesses and salespeople going wrong 
is that they make the, try to make themselves the hero when, in fact, their job is to be the guide. Sir Edmund Hillary made it to the top of Mount Everest, not because of his prowess, but because Sherpa Tensing was there. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda were there to make Luke Skywalker look good. And that's our job. The problem I see too often is that salespeople are driven by ego. Sorry, weak salespeople are driven by ego. And the best salespeople I know are egoless. They, they have ambition, they have drive, but what they never allow themselves to do is get sucked into that drama triangle where they're worrying about proving themselves right. They're not fretting about the outcome. They're focusing on being excellent at every step of the way, helping the prospect or the client recognize that they have a problem that perhaps they didn't even realize. They're asking questions that are delivering insight. And that's how they differentiate. It's not simply by showing up and throwing up. It's by asking questions that help the prospect see their world through a different lens. And I operate a lot now in the channel since I wrote my book. And I was speaking to Jay McBain at Forrester a couple of months back. And his prediction is that within the next 10 years, that the IT stack will involve 35 million different options. Clients are overwhelmed already by the volume of information. And they're under pressure because they have to do more with less. There's change operating all around them. They're under pressure to deliver with fewer resources. Their margins are being squeezed. The competitive landscape is brutal. And we have to, as professional salespeople, help them see the world clearly, cut through the noise that's surrounding them, and help them to recognize that if they don't change, one of my favorite proverbs is, is if you're green, you grow, if you're ripe, you rot. And so often what I see is buyers become complacent because they get comfortable in what made them successful in the past, and they don't change. You only have to look at Nokia and Kodak. And a lot of the large IT companies that are out there today are really struggling to genuinely make the change to SaaS and the cloud because their business model hasn't really changed while they've adopted these technologies. And so we're seeing the uberization of a lot of these sectors of the market because people are coming along and disrupting and they're starting with a different business model, with a different set of insights. And as a result of that, they are able to help the prospect see things differently rather than selling selfishly. I think in your book, you said, I can't remember who you quoted. It's if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And I think that's a stroke of genius. Who, who came up with that? A U.S. Army general named Eric Shinseki. How do you sort spell of that? S-H-I-N-E-S-K-I, I think, Shinseki. His point was the Army you know, hasn't changed in a long time. Here's what I would tell you, though, about what you said, because I agree business models can and are being disrupted. But I think that the San Francisco variety of entrepreneur, and, and normally they don't describe themselves as entrepreneurs, they describe themselves as serial entrepreneurs, which means somebody who started a lot of things but didn't finish any of them uh, because they like the ideas more than they like the execution and they like the idea of being an entrepreneur more than 
you know, a real entrepreneur is a plumber that gets three yeah. trucks. That's a real entrepreneur. They're going to run a business. They're going to grow it themselves. It's interesting to me that Uber lost $5 billion last quarter. And yeah. it's interesting to me that this race to scale so that you can use cash out of a business is, is in vogue for some reason. When today, well, SoftBank is trying to figure out what to do with WeWork, who was valued at $47 billion when they put billions of dollars into the company. And now it's estimated to be worth something like $8 billion because they have short-term lending facilities in place and long-term debts. And they lose $5,200 on every new client they bring in. It's not a scalable model as it's structured. And you know all these new models, the thing that's most interesting to me at my age and knowing what I know now is that if you want to see the future, you don't look to the future, you look to the past because the laws and reality doesn't really care that you want a new business model. There's not a business model that's scalable, that does anything worthwhile over time that isn't profitable. And, and losing $5 billion in a quarter and ending up $20 billion in debt after a few years is a big hole to dig out of. And we'll see. I hope Uber survives. They're my favorite and I, <clears throat> I use them all over the world. But I think that we just have to be careful. A lot of the things that happen in our world in sales for the last, I'll call it, let's go maybe six to eight years. And maybe you'll want to go further back than what I just decided as a, a time frame. The idea that you can automate the sales process, you can do it all over email. The chief marketing officer is the one that's going to manage the spamming that goes to people mm-hmm. and you're going to be able to print money is uh, detrimental to what salespeople do. So we've seen that now with uh, these ideas that you can just email people and get new clients. And certainly in transactional sales, you can certainly do that. They're trying to be an Amazon. But at the very same time, where I think the market has shifted, if you're really going to be a salesperson, automation is not going to help you. Value creation is going to help you. So you have to be relevant and interesting and thoughtful and deep. And you have to read and you have to think and you have to be someone capable of being a trusted advisor. And so I think we're focusing on efficiency. It's efficient to have a computer send emails, but it's not effective. And it certainly doesn't make the salesperson any more effective sitting in front of a customer. So my focus in three books and 4,125 blog posts or some number like that has been on how do we help the individual salesperson perform better? Because that's the most interesting part of all this for me. I absolutely agree with you. What I'm very conscious of is businesses that scale without being profitable don't really have a very long shelf life because eventually the wheels will come off. Reality doesn't really care about your feelings at all. I've checked this. I would like the world to be organized in a very different way than it's organized right now, but it turns out it doesn't make much of a difference what I believe. So you, you pay attention, right? Absolutely. And the other thing that I'd like to pick up on is I have a view that when people leave school, they become functionally illiterate to a large extent. That if you're not constantly reading, feeding your mind, taking on new information, staying current with what works, what doesn't work, 
recognizing what the trends are in your marketplace, your customer's marketplace, then you're effectively going to go the way of the dinosaur. And you can make a living or scrape a living. But if you really want to reach the heights of our profession, you have to invest in yourself. You have to read. You have to stay abreast of what's going on in the marketplace. And if you don't do that, eventually it comes home to roost because the majority of salespeople in my book have one year experience 10, 20 times over because they haven't adapted. And it's crying shame. I mean, when I'm interviewing for my clients, I'm asking them about what they're reading and what they've done to improve themselves. And it's depressing how frequently salespeople just don't. They haven't learned anything in the last six to 12 months. They just keep doing more of the same that doesn't work. Why is it that management allows that to happen? What, did you say why is it that management allows that to happen? Yeah. It's only the manager's job is to hire the best people and then get the best out of them, which involves uh, training, coaching. You and I are in wild agreement on that. But I, I think there's a larger gap that what you're talking about is a symptom and not the root cause of the disease. Mm -hmm. So the root cause of the disease is a lack of accountability. And when there are no consequences, when I hear salespeople say, well, I want my people to read, but they don't, who's allowing that? And when you say, well, I want them to do the training, but they don't want to do the training. Well, who is dictating the terms and conditions of the work relationship. And look, if you're not reading, if you're not studying, if you're not paying attention, and I beg young salespeople to just start by listening to CNBC because it's kind of like Game of Thrones. There's so much going on in the business world. Like the WeWork story is, it's interesting. The CEO is getting thrown out and people are trying to figure out how to save their money. There's a lot going on there. But not reading is the same as not knowing how to read. So you are functionally illiterate if you're not reading. And as human knowledge continues to double at a a blistering pace, in some areas, it's doubling every two years. In other areas, it's doubling every five years. But you're falling behind. And the reason that you should be surrounded by books and why you should be taking courses and why you should be getting training, why you should be listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos is because all of these ideas are useful to you in making you a more knowledgeable person and a person that has a lot more understanding of what's going on in the world and how to help people with it. So you and I are in wild agreement there, but I, I think that the root cause is a lack of accountability. You're a sales leader and you're within the sound of our voices. And if you're not dictating, you are reading this book. We have a general here who just stepped down as Secretary of Defense, uh, James Mattis. And he has a reading list and leaders are required as they move up. There's a a library of books that you have to read at the next level to prepare you to be successful at that level. And I have no idea why in anything that matches uh, warfare in a couple particular areas. Like there's Mm -hmm people that already possess something that you want. There's a contest going on where there's a winner and a loser. The thing is all based on human interactions and implications and consequences. I don't know why we wouldn't try to match that and say, look, you're going to have to continue to grow as you go through this and the world gets more complicated. It's more complicated like you described for our clients 
And that means that you have to know a heck of a lot more to be valuable to somebody else. Absolutely. Well, have you read Hamish Knox's book, Accountability? I have not, but I'm always willing to take a advice really on good books. Read. Really good read and wonderful cadence of accountability. And I would couple that with Bill Bartlett's book, The Sales Coach's Playbook. I don't yep. know if you've read that. Um, yep. But the two of them together, a really important combination. And I absolutely agree. You deserve what you tolerate and you get what you tolerate. If you do not put consequence in place, if you don't hold people to account, and more importantly, people don't hold themselves to account, then that suggests to me that you have a problem with management and you have a problem with your recruitment because virtually every management problem starts with wrong hires. If you'd hired the right people and you'd established the ground rules and their clear expectations up front, and you did a proper onboarding process that involved inculcating them with the right behaviors, the right habits, right from day one, and then you tracked and measured that so that you were constantly helping them to improve, and you had a cadence of coaching to ensure that every single week they make progress, and every month and every quarter they're advancing themselves, then you wouldn't have the volume of management problems. Because when I hear managers whining and moaning and grumbling and complaining about how terrible their salespeople are, my first response is when you looked in the mirror and you recognized that maybe you didn't hire the right people or you were complacent and lazy in your onboarding process and then you didn't hold their feet to the fire and there were no consequences and you didn't escalate and you hung on to these people for a very long time. Didn't the question go through your mind, where did I go wrong? You're not very popular, are you? Nope. But I, have <laughs> a, I already have a friend, Anthony. I don't need another one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm once plenty. There's a book called Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, and it was turned right. into a terrible movie. And the book is the first book on the Marines reading list. And that's where I found it. And I wondered why they started their reading list with a sci-fi book. And then I, I read the introduction by Orson Scott Card, who had just finished reading a three-volume biography of the American Civil War called Army of the Potomac. And his, his takeaway from reading that was that President Lincoln had four generals. He had three generals before Grant, and all of the generals failed. And then he got Grant, and Grant very, very quickly and very successfully won the war. Yeah. And what he recognized was that it was the same horses, same colonels, same captains, same terrain, same enemy. Everything's the same except the leader. So how is it that Grant was willing to, well, it wasn't, how was he willing? Grant was capable of winning the war because he was willing to use the resources at his disposal to impose his will on the outcome that he needed. And yep. the others were unwilling to do that. They were unwilling to make people do the work, but Grant was willing. And I think that that's why we have some of the problems that we have in sales is because the leader doesn't want to make people do the things that they need to do to be successful. And we've sort of gotten away from even talking about activity management because no one wants to do that because it's a difficult conversation. And people that have sold for a long time are like, look, you can't manage people by the activity. And the truth of the matter is they're not taking enough action and they're not creating enough opportunities. They're not winning enough opportunities. They don't have a cadence or a sequence for their prospecting. 
there's no consequences for not doing it. And people find out three quarters down the line that they're way off the number where they need to be, but they weren't doing anything about it before that. So it, I, I, it's an epidemic. And it, it, if you want to fix it, you just have to impose consequences. And of course, care about people, coach them, train them, develop them, but you've got to hold them accountable. Uh, absolutely. And you also have to focus on the leading rather than the lagging indicators. One of the things I see an awful lot of is managers trying to manage the numbers. By the time the numbers have already come in, it's already too late. The horse has bolted, it's gone over the hill, and it's gone to pasture. The mistake that I see very often is managers think their job is to manage. It absolutely isn't. If you've hired the right people, and you've onboarded and trained and developed them well, and you're coaching them frequently, and you're holding them accountable, then management constitutes maybe 3 to 5% of your day-to-day activity. It's not a supervisory role. It's a development role. It's a recruitment role. And if you're having to supervise people, then that's on you. The problem with lagging indicators is that it's an autopsy. So yeah. it lets you figure out how the body died. Yeah. So what, what you really, <laughs> yeah. So you, the leading indicators allow you to decide that there's some sort of illness so that you can do something about it before the body dies. Much better decision. Uh, absolutely. I'm just making a note on that because so, there's a blog in that one. Tell me this then. I know that in Eat Their Lunch, you've got a wonderful process in terms of helping people to identify the kind of research that you need to do to deliver the insights that your prospects and your customers want to hear about. And that feeds your prospecting behavior. And it feeds that really very, very elegant prospecting cadence that you describe in there. Can you talk a little bit about the research piece? It's really interesting because when I go speak to organizations, I'll start rattling off trends and things that have implications for their clients. And I'll do it without telling them what I'm doing. And I'll show this to them. And then the first question is always, where did you get that? And I tell them I got it from LMGTFY, LMGTFY.com, which is an acronym for let me Google that for you. And (laughs) it's a wonderful place to send people because all it is is just the Google box so that you can type in something and search it. And all you have to do to start this process is go out to the internet, go to Google, go to Yahoo, whatever it is that you like, and just type in top 10 trends impacting whatever vertical you want to pursue, healthcare, scientific, whatever it is, truck driving. And you're going to find dozens and dozens of blog posts and research from companies who are studying these things that are publishing the statistics. And so they'll, they'll be publishing statistics and you're looking for crossover. So if I say something like millennials have different buying behaviors and you find out that five groups have studied millennials and find out that they actually open every piece of snail mail that comes to them, they literally go down to the mailbox to get mail because they think there's something interesting in there. And if you don't know that millennials like mail, it's because they get so little of it, number one, but you wouldn't think that that would be a great channel for you. 
And if you don't know that millennials spend as much time on analog as they do digital, then you would be mistaken. And, you know, here in the United States, we now have people who are getting paid to play video games. Yeah. We just had an entrepreneur in Philadelphia buy a stadium so they can have a stadium full of other kids while watching wow. kids play video games. And if you don't know that, then you don't know where your audience is. So you, you have to start looking and paying attention and seeing what's going on so that you can give people good advice. But you don't have to work too hard to find information anymore. Marcus, you and I were on video before, so I'm, I'm going to be impolite when I say that you remember a time where there was almost no information. Like you, you yeah, didn't you know used who to the have to stakeholders go to were. You, you, you used you, to have to go to libraries and there were things called faxes, which were the latest thing. And you had to go into libraries to work through directories to collect numbers. And you had to wear out shoe leather. It was a horrible And now, now <laughs> you have all the information at your fingertips. So all you yeah. have to do is start organizing that information in a way that makes it useful for you to help people understand what they need to do. And ultimately, I've, in the book, I did two examples of that just to show people how simple it is to put something together that gives you a track to say, here are the things that we believe are going to have the biggest impact on your business over the next 18 to 24 months. And I keep using that number because it's short enough that you should do something about it and long enough that you have time to do something about it. You know, if you say, well, we think in the next 30 years, this is going to happen. Well, I won't be here in that period of time. So you need to talk to somebody that comes way after me. Tell me this then. In the book, you reference, you know, you talk about identifying four to five critical trends that will cause your client to change either now or in the future. And then develop questions that should be causing your client to consider these trends and write down the questions that could be causing your client to consider that trend now. And then you went go on to create a list of the changes that they need to be making in order to address changes in their industry or marketplace. But again, I think one of the things I see an awful lot of is lack of discipline and rigor in the way people manage their day. I think time management is a myth. You can't manage time. Time carries on with or without you. You can manage the behavior. And one of the most important things that I think we teach within our business to our clients is planning ahead. So creating a 90-day plan, populating your calendar with prospecting activity, with first and second meetings, with admin, with your personal life, health and fitness, making sure that you're putting in place research time, study time in your diary, coaching time if you're a manager, and making sure that you have all of that diarized a quarter in advance before you've even picked up the phone to any of the prospects you're intending to meet over the next 90 days. And you get so much more done if you constrain yourself and you also stick to the discipline of sticking to the plan. Because if you don't do that, then life takes over and you get seduced by the shiny and you get seduced by the immediate or the crisis. And you spend a lot of time in firefighting needlessly. But when my clients do this, all of a sudden, their production levels increase by 300, 400, 500%. I was speaking to Dave Brock probably about two weeks ago. And he made a really terrifying observation. 
which I've happily stolen. I have given him credit on more than one occasion, but it was the time available for selling. And in his research, it's anywhere, the average is between 12 and 21%. Now, what I'm also conscious of is that the average salesperson is only 25 to 35% productive in any given working day. When you take into account time available for selling and being highly productive, that takes their selling time being productive down to below 4 to 6%. And is it any wonder that 69.7% of salespeople, based on a study that Sander did in June, 500 companies, 69.7% of sales reps worldwide were at or below 60% of quota. Imagine if they were productive for 8 or 10 or even 15% of their working day because they planned, there was rigor associated with those activities, they prioritized. It just strikes me as utter madness in spite of the fact we're seeing the volume of people hitting target going below 50% for the first time in 2018. And that trend is continuing downwards. What on earth is going on that there's a species with that stupid that we don't seem to be able to adapt to this environment and recognize that what we're doing is basically self-harming? We may as well be shooting ourselves in the foot. You are aware of the human endeavor called politics, right? So how was it hard <laughs> for you to not believe anything could be this bad? I mean, you, you know it because you're a grown-up, so you've seen it. Here's the thing. When you get to chapter three in Eat Their Lunch, I, I broke down a prospecting cadence for 60 what I call dream clients over the course yeah. of 90 days. And, and what happens if you impose the discipline like that and you do it either through paper or index cards, which is what I originally did it on, or some other format, it's the not having to think about what I have to do and the not yeah. being seduced by my email and not being, you know, taken away by some novelty on the internet. And what we've done is we've spent so much time using technology to try to make things better and easier for salespeople. We don't do very much work anymore. We spend a lot of time working and fiddling with, uh, with things that don't really have anything to do with selling. And you can call it administravia if you want to. But, but it, it, it is... Yeah, that's close enough. It's the truth of the matter is you should only be doing two things in sales. Now, I know there's lots of things that you have to do, but you really should only be doing one of two things. You're either creating opportunities or you're pursuing and winning those opportunities. That's what you do when you're in sales. Everything else is commentary on those two things. When you say, well, I don't want them to prospect, so I'm going to buy this technology to prospect for them, then you're eliminating opportunity creation, which is always precedes opportunity capture. And when you're not working on helping salespeople be more effective as a leader, and if you're, not a, if you're a salesperson and you're not working on your effectiveness, you're not going to do well. All you should really be doing, and I, I sell a planner that we help people do this, but it, it's got three 90-minute blocks. And you can put whatever you want in your 90-minute blocks. You could say, well, I've got to write an RFP. Okay, use a 90-minute block. But what most salespeople do is they use the first 90-minute block for prospecting. And they do that every day, which means they're doing seven and a half hours of prospecting every week, which is yep. about seven hours more than 
many salespeople in many organizations. And people are That's, stunned at seven how- seven and a half hours more. It's probably seven and a half hours more in some cases. And they are stunned with what you said earlier. They're 300, 400% more effective because they've given themselves over to some task long enough and focused on it that they start generating this result. And they're stunned at how little time it really takes. No one should ask you to prospect for eight hours a day unless you're an SDR and that's really what your role is. But you don't need to. If you're effective and you've got a good approach and you've got a list and you're disciplined about what I would call professional persistent pursuit plan, you can get enough opportunities in an hour and a half a day very, very easily. Your cadence is absolutely wonderful. It's beautifully elegant. Do you mind just describing it at a very high level? The high level is the, I'm, I'm simple, Marcus. So if you have 60 accounts and you have four weeks, I can do the math and divide that to say, wait, there's 15 accounts I have to touch in week one and 15 in week two and 15 in week three and 15 in week four. But what, what I've laid out is the first communication is a wide change communication. And the second one is a facts and a figure. So some proof providing there's proof of implications. And then there's content that you could propose sharing with them or talking about, about your views and your values, which is the advice part. What do we believe you should be doing? And the cadence sort of gets, if you were to deal with 15 people in week one, and then you're going to follow up with them in week two, now you've got 30 communications and it just sort of builds and you are giving people different content and different views, integrating some social media choices, if you like that, emails, case studies, white papers, all the things that you can use to influence them, that you're the right person to help them deal with their challenges. If you haven't read the book, please read the book. And if you take nothing else away from it, goodness knows there's enough in there to keep you occupied for quite some time. But this cadence of prospecting is pure genius. And let's face it, we know that you hate prospecting. You just have to do it. You don't have to like it. And what Anthony's described here in the book is a really simple to follow structured approach that allows you to track and measure your progress. And I'm guessing also one of the most important things to do as you're going through that cadence of prospecting is to test and measure what's working and what isn't so that you can refine it and get better. Do you have any tips and advice along the way to help people to track and measure and you know, whether they're doing split testing or anything like that? I don't think split testing. I think the best thing that I've discovered is commit to the plan for 90 days. At 90 days, you're going to figure out what's resonating with people, what's not resonating with people, what causes people to accept your call. And uh, I, you should be calling to get appointments and not emailing. But you look at that and then adjust it from quarter to quarter. And to adjust it from quarter to quarter, you've got to do what we've been talking about, Marcus, which is get smart and pay attention and do some reading, do some studying, come up with some new information and continue to grow that direction. Because ultimately, when you get that meeting, you want to be the most relevant person they've ever spoken to. On that note, I think that's a really good note to come to a conclusion because you absolutely should be the most relevant person that they've ever spoken to. I, I certainly found that as I've adopted a lot of the philosophies that you've described, when I have meetings with prospects, they say that 
this was a really important meeting. This, I've never spoken to anybody about this before. I didn't realize just how in trouble we were or what kind of problems we were facing. As a result of that, you're elevated in their estimation. And then you move to the trusted advisor position, which I know is ultimately the objective of their lunch process so that you go from just being a commodity provider to being the first person they pick up the phone to when they have a problem. You're the first person who comes to mind. So Anthony, first of all, thank you so much. This has been wonderfully insightful and really educational, even for me. So I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me on. And I'm grateful and uh, humbled by your kind words about my work. It's a pleasure and thoroughly deserved. Would you mind sharing some of the blogs and podcasts that you read and listen to or people you see on video for other people to get involved with? Marcus, I think you and I may be cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. So I tend to like things that are both practical and tactical, but conceptual. So I like for reading Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who wrote the Black yeah, Swan Black and Anti-Fragile. Yeah. So I, I like things like that. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Revisionist History. Sam Harris, the neuroscientist. I like things like that. So I spend a lot of time listening. And I don't only listen to podcasts, but I also do a lot of just downloading because I fly all the time. I download YouTube videos so I can listen to them when I'm on airplanes. Have you read the Farnham Street blog, FS blog? I'm a FS subscriber. Blog. Yeah, it's fabulous. Dave Brock suggested that, and I have to say that was wonderful. <laughs> I think another really interesting book is Greg McEwen's book, Essentialism. I don't know if you've come across that. I have. I read everything on what they call time management or productivity, and it's a very, very good book. And I would couple that with Deep Work by Cal Newport, and those two will get your head on straight. Absolutely. And the, the other one that I really loved this year was Ray Dalio's principles. Wonderful. And at the back, he basically lists a blueprint on how not to shoot yourself in the foot and how to hold people into account. So really fantastic. I'm looking for the second volume now. Yeah, I'm waiting with bated breath. And if you had a golden ticket and you could go and advise the idiot Anthony at 23 years old, what, what advice would you give him? I wouldn't tell him a damn thing, Marcus. Like he was dumb and happy and every single mistake that he made was valuable to him later on. And he would be nowhere near where he is right now had he not made all those mistakes. So I would say nothing. Fair enough. (laughs) Excellent. Anthony, how can people get hold of you? The very best place to find me is thesalesblog.com. But you can connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn. And I've got a YouTube channel with, it's just my last name, Anna Reno. And my podcast is in the arena. You can find that at all the podcast places. And for those of you who may be seduced into misspelling Anthony's name, how do you spell it? I-A-N-N-A-R-I-N-O. Excellent. So... Anthony Anarino, thank you so much. This has been insightful, inspiring, and packed full of very, very useful information. But for those of you who would like to get hold of Anthony's books, he's written three, and they are The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, The Lost Art of Closing, and Eat Their Lunch. I'm curious, Anthony, are you going to be getting the first two on audio? 
at any point. All three are on audio, but unfortunately, Gildane Media bought the rights for the first two and they don't publish them outside of the United States. So at some point when they offer to sell me my rights back, I'll uh, release them there. Unfortunately, they're not available. How does one get hold of them if you're not in the States? Because my eyesight's not very good. So I consume hundreds of um, audiobooks. I'm not sure if you can get them at all. They were on uh, CDs at one time, but I'm not sure Gildane still produces those. It, It looks like I may have to just go onto eBay or something then. Okay. Anthony, thank you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor podcast signing off. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch at marcus.kauke at sandler.com. If there's somebody you'd like me to interview, then please email me at marcus.kauke at sandler.com and let me know who and why. And if you can furnish me with an introduction, that would be fabulous. And if you're interested specifically in scaling your business fast and make a profit without the wheels coming off by growing it through partnerships and channels, then please get in touch. This is Marcus Cowkey signing off. Happy selling. Thank you.